thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. John le Carre put it very graphically. Memory, he said, is such a whore. The singer Maurice Chevalier expressed a similar sentiment in his big hit, I Remember Eat Well. Hillary Clinton spoke of misremembering an incident at an Iraqi airport when she'd previously described herself as heroically running across the tarmac under fire. Personally, I remember scoring a great goal, which has become even better over time. What about you? Any questionable memories? Our conclusion? Memory is unreliable and can even be treacherous. Think of all those criminal trials where two witnesses recall an event in totally contradictory ways. And deceiving the court is not necessarily the motive. Deceiving oneself is as likely. So how does memory operate? In the Naked Scientist show, Can You Boost Your Memory? Dean Burnett explained that it all starts in the frontal cortex of the brain. It's very active, it's very ongoing, it's, it's processing information all the time. It's not for storage, so I liken it to writing your name in a sparkler. You know, the information's there briefly, but then things happen to, to fade. And information's coming in all the time, so the, the space is needed for other things. So you've got maybe a minute to get it into the long-term memory. Memory is our subject this week, and while we're about it, we thought we'd also look at the discipline of memorising. Related, of course, but different. My guests are Dr Amy Milton. Associate Professor in Psychology at the University of Cambridge, who is a behavioural neuroscientist and especially interested in memory reconsolidation. And Alia Ali, an honorary PhD scholar here at the Wolf Institute, Alia is researching aspects of early Islamic governance. Islamic scholarship has been closely associated with the discipline of learning texts by heart, something that's rather fallen out of fashion here in the UK. This is a fast-developing field of research, Amy. Does that distinction between short-term and long-term memory in the clip still hold good? Yes, I think it does. And perhaps another way of thinking about what that distinction is about is really about how we're going to be using that information and how that memory will be used. So short-term memory, which, is, as Dean explains, is very, very short, tends to be for information that you are using right now and that you're going to put to use and then will no longer necessarily be useful to you. Whereas that longer term memory is something that you need to hold on to, is likely to be useful again, or is building up a picture, a model of how the world works. So that distinction still holds true. It's just that some researchers 
think about it in slightly different terms, putting more emphasis on the purpose of that memory. Before we move on, can I just ask what memory reconsolidation means? So memory reconsolidation is a process that um, was rediscovered about 20 years ago. And it's the process by which memories can become updated after they've been initially acquired. Psychology has known that memory is very dynamic, is very flexible um, for decades, but it took neuroscience a little while to catch up with that idea. Around 2000, it was demonstrated in a very convincing way that even old and well-established memories under the right conditions can become updated. And my research in particular is really interested in understanding that process of reconsolidation in and of itself but also trying to exploit that process to target memories that can go wrong in mental health disorders. I love the idea of neuroscience catching up. I've always thought that we're the ones catching up with neuroscience. Alia, in English, we use the idiom learning by heart to describe memorising something. Does committing a text to memory help understanding in your experience or are they separate? So in my experience of memorising, I'd say they're two separate things. So I grew up in a Muslim household where the study and memorization of the Quran were essential parts of my formation as a young Muslim. Just briefly, the Quran is an Islamic sacred book and it's considered by Muslims to be the word of God as dictated by the Prophet Muhammad through the Archangel Gabriel and it was written down in Arabic. And the Quran consists of 30 sections and each section has a juz which has 114 chapters of varying lengths known as surahs, and within the surahs there are ayahs, otherwise known as verses, um, and each chapter is separated by the phrase Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, which means in the name of God, the most gracious, the most merciful. And the first surah, which is Surah Fatiha, means the opener, the key, is the beginning of the first juz, which contains the longest surah of the Quran, Al-Baqarah, which has 286 verses, which could take up to 180 minutes to recite. A lot of people have committed this to memory. Other chapters aren't as long and can take less than two minutes to complete. So from the age of five, uh, I went to madrasa. Madrasa is the word um, school in Arabic. But in this case, it's a space to learn the Quran as well as hadith, the sayings of the prophet, the sunnah, which was the way he lived. Um, But you may have noticed that I didn't mention the study of Arabic. That's something that I studied later and it came from my own initiative. Um, But to my Quran teachers, it was more important that I committed chapters of the Quran to memory before I could learn the understand, like to understand the meaning of the text. So committing the Quran to memory was more essential than understanding the Quran itself. And do you think memorizing was harder not understanding? I don't know how many words are in the Quran, but with all the chapters, presumably understanding what the text says must help the memorization, no? I think for Arab speakers who learned the Quran from a young age, it was more helpful for them to learn because they understood what was going on. Before I even went to Madrasa, my mom taught me the Quran at home and we would repeat over and over again. But that's the way I learned it. And I think now when I do go back to the Quran and I try to commit some parts to memory, it is more helpful now that I understand the stories that are are attached behind it, and I appreciate it a lot more. Amy, what would you say about this differentiation between remembering something and remembering a lot of text and understanding the text? Is there a connection between the two or not? For a start, I think that's amazing that you were able to do that. My own memory is dreadful. 
I'm also really interested to know, actually, whether sort of understanding the meaning presumably is helpful in some respects. But I wonder, do you find where you understand the meaning that you get the specifics of the phrasing is harder to remember? Do you find you're remembering the gist of what was said and the meaning, but not necessarily the specifics? I think in some cases that is quite accurate because it's so important in the Quran that you recite every single letter correctly. I would commit it to memory before I even try to understand what it was saying, just so that I don't get it wrong, because getting a verse wrong is really frowned upon. And because Arabic is such a dynamic language, any small um, change in an accent can change the meaning of the whole verse itself. So there are differences in how we remember in terms of specifics and gist. And you actually see that this emerges in development as well. So there's a very nice um, procedure called the DRM procedure, the Dees-Rodiger-McDermott procedure. Essentially, what you do in that procedure is you show people either a list of words or a tray of objects, but they're, they're all related in some way. So a typical one that you might do with children is you show them, you know, objects that you would find in a pencil case but you'll leave out something really obvious from the list so you might leave out the pen or you might leave out the pencil case itself what you tend to find um, when you, you, you show people these objects for a period of time you then take it away and you ask them to recall what you find is that they are more likely to recall objects that are related to that list that weren't necessarily presented to them. And that's particularly the case for adults who are more relying on the gist of, oh, it's things I find in the pencil case. But younger children actually don't tend to show this behaviour quite so much. The idea being they haven't necessarily got that concept of things I would find in a pencil case that would allow them to encode that memory more efficiently. So I wonder whether you would get this sort of paradoxical effect of understanding the meaning in some ways might make it harder to recall the specifics because when you're focusing on the specifics without the meaning, you're kind of encoding that in a in a different way. I studied the Quran way before I remember, but then when I started actively participating and taking it more seriously, I would read a verse and um, one of the ways I would memorise it was I'd just remember the first letters of one verse and then just commit the pattern to memory so that if I were to read it and there was a bit of the pattern missing it would sound very odd to me and repeating this over and over again just helped me commit it more to memory. I wonder Amy if we jump to the other end of the life cycle from a young person to an old person whether old people who have memory problems and associated sometimes with that uh, with, with the dementia um, sometimes uh, have a facade that they they appear to know something and they don't presumably because they they know the gist of the conversation so they can speak to the the sort of uh, the general subject but you know that they can't deal with the specific is there something there so I'll, I'll preface any answer by saying that I'm I'm not a clinician but I think there is a difference between people who have pathologies like dementia and older adults in general so there is this idea that actually as we get older we do remember slightly differently and we do encode gist more than specifics if you think about that in functional terms actually it's a much more efficient thing to be able to remember the gist of a situation and then to reconstruct how that situation would likely have panned out because the majority of the time you're probably going to be accurate enough 
whereas for pathology, I think there are actually changes in the brain that actually then do lead to problems in um, encoding and recall and also distinguishing old from new as well. And that timeline can become quite diffuse, I think, in some of the pathologies like dementia. Yes, you're right. There's a distinction, isn't there, between the, the, the clinical illness and just the, the ageing process. Alia, we've touched on um, individual memory. What role does communal memory play? Initially, when Islam was spreading, history was not written and the texts that I study were written down 150 years after the events occurred. Um, but in the case of the Quran, it was compiled during Uthman's time which I believe was from 634 to 644. And when I think about the study of the Quran and hadiths, I'd say it's quite communal. The Quran itself is used in every aspect of a Muslim's life and specifically in prayer. A lot of Muslims pray five times a day. And I think the communal part comes in because Muslims are encouraged to pray together in congregation, in family homes, in mosques, in designated spaces. My father used to lead us in prayer when we were younger and still does at times. Because prayer is such an essential part of a Muslim's life and it's repeated over and over again, the act of memory or memorizing links itself to an action. So it just comes quite naturally. I hear that, and particularly in the context of liturgy and in the context of sacred scripture. But of course, communal memory is wider than that. And the communities tend to remember certain things that suit them and certain things that don't suit them, I suppose, like an individual. But how does that play out, do you think? I think one of the criticisms of early Islamic history is that because events weren't written down as soon as it happens, memory was exaggerated for example when one of the commanders Khalid bin Walid had gone to Basra to help one of the other commanders it said that he went in with 10,000 soldiers and some argue that this number was exaggerated this large number was used to show how forceful or how strong the Muslim leadership was at the time so memory was used to show the strength of the Muslims at the time. And it's like a glue, isn't it, Alia? It holds the community together. Let's take a pause. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Amy Milton and Alia Ali. And as far as I can recall, we're discussing memory and memorising. Let's go back to Dean Burnett and his enlightening trip through the brain. Next stop is the hippocampus. It's shaped a bit like a seahorse in cross-section, hence the name hippocampus. It's not about, you know... uh holiday camp for large mammals. <laughs> and it is actually uh, sort of like the central processing centre of all long-term memory. Sensory information is fed into it and the hippocampus takes this and combines all the important stuff and forms new memories by connecting you know, nerve cells together in certain ways to form synaptic connections. And each of these is what sort of represents a memory. I believe the hippocampus is located close to the part of the brain that senses smell. Could that explain, Amy, why smell can be a potent agent for recall? So it can to an extent. So just in front of the hippocampus is another structure, a little almond-shaped structure called the amygdala. Now that's a really interesting structure because that's implicated in lots of things to do with the processing of emotion. It also receives very, very dense projections from the olfactory system, so we get lots of information about smell. And Nearly all of the sensory systems, when they go to the brain, 
have to stop in this region, which is known as the thalamus. And it's thought the thalamus stop allows us to decide which sensory impressions we're going to pay attention to at any point in time. The connection between the olfactory system and the amygdala doesn't go through the thalamus that's direct. So you've got a direct link to these emotional parts of the brain. And the amygdala, in turn, heavily influences the hippocampus, which is why we tend to remember events that have an emotional tone for them much better than other events. So you can see that sort of through this amygdala pathway, smells really good at reminding us of those kind of emotional internal states that then will help us to recall memories that are more likely um, reliant on the hippocampus. Well, that's our scientific way into the question. How can you help us, Amy, in terms of false memory? And that's always been something that puzzled me because sometimes it's self-generated and sometimes it's induced by um, certain forms of deep analysis. But what's going on with false memory? And of course, Alia, in your work and any work when you study texts, uh, particularly religious texts, um, that's one of the challenges we have in terms of, of dealing with false memories. So the way I think to understand false memory is to take a slightly different perspective on what memory is for. So Daniel Schachter put forward these, this really nice idea that memory is not about remembering the past, it's about predicting the future. So if you think about memory in those terms, actually memory doesn't need to be 100% accurate. It just needs to be good enough to predict how a situation is likely to turn out in the future on the basis of your past experience. So we know that memory is dynamic and you know, my own work in reconsolidation speaks to this to some extent in terms of how that can actually happen in the brain. But we know that when events are recalled, if there is something slightly unexpected, so it's been recalled in a particular way, but actually the situation in front of you right now, whether that's somebody else recalling the same event or you know, something like that, or even you know, misinformation introduced accidentally by questions from you know, a police officer, for example, if we're thinking about eyewitness testimony, that information can become incorporated into the memory. And the issue that you've got there is it's really difficult to distinguish the information that has come later from the information that was originally there. And in terms of confidence, in terms of vividness of recall, you can't really tease these things apart. People often describe, you know, remembering childhood events, comparing their recall with, you know, a sibling's recall who was also there, and they've got completely different memories of what happened, just because they've both sort of been going off in different directions in their recall um, for an extended period of time. But if you didn't have that comparison, you just wouldn't know. I do know that when Bukhari, who was a scholar, was compiling the hadith, the sayings and the life of the Prophet, he travelled across the Middle East and tried to compile a collection of um, information regarding the Prophet Muhammad's life. And he managed to compile up to 7,000 hadiths and his book has 97 chapters. Bukhari's work is considered as one of the like the biggest authorities and it's quite trusted in the Muslim community and the reason why is because of the way he collected the hadiths itself he followed a series of isnads and an isnad is a, a way to trace who said what so he would go back several generations until 
the one person who was connected to the prophet and he would separate them in terms of how trusted they were and their reputation in the society and because the arabs themselves were quite an oral community the way they memorized things was quite scientific what i'm hearing you saying is something that many faith communities also claim i know christians are concerned about the reliability of the gospels you know they're written 30 40 50 years after the life and death of christ i know that many traditional jews are concerned about showing that biblical events really happened at a particular time and and i sometimes wonder whether those of us of faith get a bit hung up by the concerns for historical reliability you know because these texts these scriptures aren't history as we understand history. They are um, theological affirmations, if you like. And we sometimes get a bit too worried about the isnad or the source or whether something's historically reliable. Am I being difficult or would you accept that? I don't think you're being difficult. I think that's a critical way to think. And this is something that I, I deal with quite a lot in my research because of the unreliability of the text. Like one of the methodologies that I use in order to reconstruct the political history of my period is prosopography and what this entails is I collect a genealogy or biography of about 70 governors and make a really big family tree to figure out how these individuals gained their positions of power. I try to look at it from more of a historical source so if I were to use texts from Bukhari or the Quran or the Tariq um, I wouldn't use it as a as a historical source in in order for it to tell me what the history of that time period was rather i i would use it to fill in the gaps of the kind of history that i'm trying to understand yes no i, I can see that i was thinking of um, of paul of tarsus of st paul we have seven letters that's all that we know were written by Paul over a good or oh, nearly 20 years. And of course, if someone took seven of my letters over 20 years, they would find no consistency. And yet everything he wrote that we have occurred after this momentous event in his life, this what's called the, the, the conversion on the way to Damascus. And I just wonder whether trauma, and it was trauma, what, what impact trauma has on memory. Amy, have you done any work on that? So I've done some preclinical sort of rodent work trying to model that, but I'm, I'm very interested in trauma and particularly post-traumatic stress disorder. We do know that very intense, stressful events do change the way that we remember things. In particular, there seems to be a change in the emphasis and the function of different parts of the brain supporting different memories. When we talk about memory, we, we often refer to memory as sort of one single thing. And we're normally referring to a particular type of memory um, called episodic memory, which is memory for events and, and you know, what's happened and, and so on. Conversationally, that's normally what we mean. But actually, we know that memories come in lots of different types. And episodic and event memory is just one type of memory. Another really important type of memory, and um, as I alluded to earlier, is this idea of emotional memory. So we know um, what cues in the environment mean for us in terms of being good for us or being bad for us. We know to avoid places of danger. We know to approach things that are, that are good. Those types of memories are supported by different brain structures and those are differentially affected by the stress and the hormones that are generated in a really stressful event. So what you find is that the emotional memory that tells you that you know, 
teaches you that particular cues are dangerous or threatening or so on, that becomes really, really good with very high levels of stress. But the memory for the event itself, the structure of the hippocampus, which is supporting that, really struggles under high levels of stress hormones. So the memory itself will change from having this very clear narrative structure with an emotional tint, which is what would happen in sort of moderate levels of stress. You know, when you're interested and you know aroused and engaged in the environment, you get sort of this nice balance of you know, good, really good event memory because the emotional side is supporting the recall of that event and storage in the recall of that event but very high levels of trauma what you get are these disconnected sort of flashes of narrative that don't necessarily have a clear temporal structure um, so the narrative gets broken down but the memory for those cues the threatening cues that are associated with trauma becomes really strong does muscle memory play a role here that instinctive memory so for muscle memory, um, the classic example that's often used is riding a bike, because you can know that you can ride a bike. That's a semantic memory. You may have a memory for having ridden a bike for the first time, which is an episodic memory. But what you don't have access to in this procedural or motor memory is the exact combination of muscle contractions and how you need to hold yourself exactly on the bike how you counteract the wind blowing at you in a certain way so that you don't lose your balance, how fast you need to pedal. You clearly have learned those things, but you don't have conscious access to the content of that memory and you can only acquire it through experience. As you were speaking, Amy, and, and this is for you earlier, I was thinking about that lovely idea of memory being about the future. I remember Cardinal Casper talking about memoria futuria, memory for the future. And in some ways, I think that's very helpful. And in the texts that you're studying, whether they're Quranic texts that you're reading earlier or your slightly later materials in terms of governance, is there something about the future in those texts that you're reading rather than the past? I think these texts were, were put together so that people of the future could engage with it and read it and understand what happened in the past so that they could remember events. Alia, you asked your followers on TikTok about memory and memorization of the Quran, didn't you? A few days ago, in preparation for the podcast, I thought it would be quite interesting to find out from my followers, if they were Muslim or if they grew up learning the Quran, what tips they would give for anybody who wants to memorize the Quran in the future. And I had over 280 responses and it really varied. One person responded, they said it was interesting to see Arabs and non-Arabs having different techniques of memorizing the Quran. And this goes back to Amy's point about um, one's understanding of Arabic and how that influences how to memorize the Quran. But then there were also some other um, slightly less fun ways of learning the Quran through fear, because in madrasas, Sometimes they do instill some fear into the children, either through physical violence or um, emotional abuse. Sounds like the carrot and the stick. <laughs> yeah. We're coming towards a close, and I wonder how far we are from really understanding memory. It's a very simple question, of course, and the answer is probably um, near and far. In terms of the fluidity of memory, which I think has come across in this conversation, it's ever-changing, and I suppose, is memory itself changing? Are we close to understanding it, Amy? We've made a lot of progress, but I think we've still got a long way to go. 
one of the most interesting things about memory as a topic, and we kind of alluded to it in this conversation, is that you can study it at so many different levels. So you can study it at the level of one brain cell talking to another brain cell and what happens in terms of the biochemistry of those cells that allows that um, you know, the, the way in which they talk to each other to change in a way that reflects memory. But you can go right up through brain circuits, brain structures, how they interact with each other to the level of the whole organism, and also beyond that to the kind of communal memory that we were talking about earlier and the way in which the society and the culture influences the way in which information is remembered. So different levels on which memory can be studied. I confess that I'd nearly forgotten this podcast is only 28 minutes long and I must bring it to a close. Thanks to my guests, Amy Milton and Alia Ali, and many thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, and I hope you did, you might want to remind yourself of some of your favourite previous editions by checking out our archive, which includes communication and conflict and much, much more. However, I wouldn't expect even the most fervent Naked Reflections fan to start memorising our output, but please do feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at the Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.